Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Now that bumper is uh, a song called Jarelle of Jory by Mercedes Lackey and Leslie Fish. Uh, kind of a folk song written uh, by fans of, of science fiction fantasy. Um, so we'll be looking in this episode at one of the, the Jarelle of Jory stories. Those are by C.L. Moore. But we'll be looking at other science fiction by women too. So this episode begins a series uh, 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 on the Library of America publication called The Future is Female. This is not one of their regular series uh, publications. If you subscribe to Library of America, if you buy those books, you know, they all have the, the cloth uh, back. They're always in these four colors. They're all like blue, red, gray, or green. Um, and they all have the same typeface and the same size. This is the same size as the other books, but the typeface is different. It's got an introduction, something the other volumes don't have. This one doesn't have, uh, it has biographical notes, which some of the anthology books that they publish in the main series have instead of the, the timeline for authors. Um, it's, it's different. Now, I know they published some other of these special volumes over the years, uh, things like, I think, Edgar Rice Burroughs, who I don't know why he doesn't get his own, own series, but um, his own main, main series. Uh, collection. Um, I don't know if some of this has to do with copyright or whatever, but for they they publish these and they're they're in a different format. The books are a little bit more traditional, uh, hardback. Typeface is a little bit more what you get in, uh, you know, more conventional publishers, anyways. Uh, so this is a quite a great book. It's edited by Lisa Yazek, um, who did a really, really good job of choosing 25 stories. We actually have 26 women writers represented here because one of the stories is is co-written. Um, some of these are quite famous, obviously, you know, women that any science fiction fan would would know. Of course, Ursula K. Le Guin is represented here. Uh, C.L. Moore, as I already mentioned, Judith Merrill. Who, whose story is in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, and it's recreated here, uh, Leigh Brackett, and others that are well-known, but also some women writers that, that maybe aren't so well-known, maybe didn't write that many stories, uh, or only wrote occasionally in science fiction. So um, a really nice represent, representation. The, the story's dates, uh, the earliest one, it's chronological in the anthology. The first is 1928, The Miracle of the Lily by Claire Winger Harris. And the final story is Ursula K. Le Guin's Nine Lives, which was published in 1969. So it's really the pulp era is most represented here. The pulp era and that kind of new wave science fiction of the 60s is, is represented at the, at the end, which we know so much about because we've been studying Philip K. Dick for a long time. Um, so yeah, this is mostly represented for the pulps. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't pull the story all the way to the present. And of course there are many uh, women science fiction writers today continuing this but um, uh, Yazek is really interested in the, 
this, this pulp era, right, in the golden age of science fiction. Because her goal here, and this is really clear from her introduction, which is a really great introduction, a really important work of scholarship included at the beginning of this, this book, is to show the contribution of women to the golden age of science fiction on the pulp era. Um, and she's got a couple um, t idols she wants to break down first, and, and one of which is that kind of that Mary Shelley is, the only, is, the, is really maybe started science fiction, but women were kind of absent, right? Obviously, that wasn't true. Women were active. The other is that women kind of only wrote as men, you know, with pseudonyms, and some women did, um, you know, but most didn't. And, and so it's important to, to bear in mind that that's kind of uh, a bit of a a bit of a myth, right? Of course, James Tiptree is, is a famous example, or C.L. Moore, you know, who used the, you know, use the abbreviations to hide. Maybe. I, I don't think that's really true in her case, but, um, you know, and there's a handful here that do um, publish as, you know, with, with men's names, John J. Wells this year. But by and large, they, were, they, they publish under their, their name, their, their real name. Um, I, what I like about this, too, and I noticed this when I started reading the stories. I actually read, started reading the stories before I went back and read the introduction. What I, what I noticed is that these weren't just stories by women. These were stories that actively challenged or changed, that, that it's important that a woman wrote it, or it's important that you know, the author of the story is trying to incorporate themes that, that look at things from different points of view through female characters, through, through gender analysis, like reinterpreting, reinterpreting gender. Looking at societies in which women are in control instead of men. Looking, you know, there's several, actually a couple we're going to look at today that, that do that. Uh, that have, you know, in fact, Yazik talks about the contribution of these women writers. And she identifies three. The three things that women writers brought to the science fiction genre that wouldn't have been there or would have came in in different ways had, had women not been invited to, to publish in the science fiction magazines and, and other formats. So the first, to quote Yazek, first, first and foremost, they made complex character development a priority in the genre that initially excelled in big ideas and impressive gadgetry rather than emotional depth. Okay, so that's the first. There's not much more to say about that other than that, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll keep our eye open for that as we, as we read, right? Um, second, and this is the big one. This is, I think, the really big contribution that's really exciting and something I noticed right away when I read them. To, again, quote the editor here, not surprisingly, women, write, women revise science fiction representations of male-female relations as well. Readers are tired of the yarn based on the superhero and the ravishing babe, and, uh, lay bracket warned, would-be science fiction writer, in 1944. For her, stereotypical pulp-era romance narratives full of stalwart space jocks with their requisite ray guns saving hysterical damsels of distress from monstrous aliens were simply old stuff. And there's a lot of that. Uh, certainly, Jarell of Jory, um, uh, The Conquest of Gola has that. Space episode does it in a really good way. So some of the stories I'm going to look at actually in this episode do exactly that. Um, what else do we got? Uh, the next contribution, quote, traversing interstellar voids, piloting vast spaceships, and exploring exotic plants as nimbly as male science fiction writers, women of early sci-fi also bit more intimate down-to-earth worlds for speculation and 
reflection. Motherhood, community, survival, and the future of human reproduction are significant concerns in these and other stories featured here, both early and late. The ways in which science and technology might be used to literally reconstruct sex, overturning readers' assumptions about natural gendered behavior, and enabling radical new modes of living are a third prominent theme. So that's actually the third theme um, that she includes. So they're kind of the, 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 the woman heroine or, or changing gender dynamics, adding kind of an emotional layer to characters that maybe wasn't there. And third, talking about these uh, issues that, that really are shaped primarily by gender, like community, motherhood, uh, reproduction, sexuality. These, these concepts get incorporated into the, the genre. So I, this introduction is really great. And if you pick up this volume, do take the introduction seriously because it does set up what she's trying to do as, um, or what Yazek was trying to do when she chose the stories that she chose. Now, unfortunately, I found that not many of these stories had like audiobook versions that were at least available in public domain. You know, there's, unlike earlier science fiction stuff from the 19th century, you can get a lot of stuff through LibriVox. None of that stuff was, was easy to find. So um, uh, as with Willa Cather, mostly I had to read this stuff the old fashioned way. Uh, I've, been, I've be, kind of become a bit addicted to the audiobook. So maybe it's a good thing. I'm not always um, granted free audiobooks uh, thanks to things like LibriVox. Um, but, yeah, nevertheless, uh, really great selection. But I, what I want to say about that is it seems that a lot of these aren't like the classic stories. I, I didn't hear of most of these stories before. Um, I, you know, I knew a little bit about Jarell of Jory. I, know, I never read any of more stories on that. Of course, I knew uh, that only a mother because that's in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. And so, you know, the, these authors, some of them I knew, but I haven't read these particular works. So I think if you pick up this volume, um, it's about 25 bucks, you know, the same price as most of the Library of America volumes, um, a little bit cheaper off the, off the bookshelf. Uh, it's about the price of, if you subscribe to Library of America, you get them for 25. So it's about the same in that case. Um, but it's about a buck a story, and I, and I think it's worth it. I think it's a nice thing to have on your shelf, and I'm excited to talk about it now. So uh, it's about 500 pages, so we're going to do it over five episodes, 25 stories. Um, so average out about five, five stories per, per episode. So for this particular episode, we'll look at the first five stories uh, collected in this anthology. Uh, the first of them, I'll just give you the names of them. So... If you're reading, if you want to read these, you can go read them after you hear what they are. Uh, the Miracle of the Lily, 1928, by Claire Winger Harris. Uh, the Conquest of Gola, 1931, by Leslie F. Stone. The Black God's Kiss, 1934, by C.L. Moore. That's the Jarella Jory story. Uh, Space Episode, 1941, by Leslie Perry. And then That Only a Mother, 1948, by Judith Merrill. That, that's the story that's included in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame and Many of you have probably come across that story before. But in this particular case of these four stories, of these five stories, that's the only one of these I've read before. The other, so yeah, that's why I think this anthology makes a really good contribution because it's including stories that are not only doing what um, Yazik says in the introduction of really pushing uh, these themes that women contributed, right? promoting and, and exposing us to these themes that women did introduce to science fiction. Um, things that men weren't doing at the time. Um, but then by doing it with stories that, that you might not have on your shelf already. So, uh, 
that's that's a great thing about this anthology. So let's begin by talking about the Miracle of the Lily by 1928, or published in 1928 by uh, Harris. So the Miracle of the Lily is a story told over several generations. It's actually several centuries um, of time, and you know each of those sort section is from a different moment in history. And basically, it's about a kind of ecology. It's about the nature of human domination over this planet. Um, now, the key idea here is, you know, if you go back to dinosaur times, you know, however million years that was, um, you know, the Earth was dominated by reptiles, right? And the mammals, which were evolving, usually a small little, you know, rodents and things, um, they eventually came to dominate the planet, right? So the core idea here is then what would come next after mammals? If mammals were replaced by what? And it's insects is the theory. It, you know, Philip Dick wrote this really interesting story. Um, I forget the name of it, but it's about basically a war between different insects and, you know, how precarious human existence on this planet is because humans, although... Insects are small. Humans are so overwhelmingly outnumbered by, by insects, right? Now, that's a more vulgar story than this one. This one actually has a very interesting idea because the reason the insects come to potentially replace humans is because they're able to destroy the crops that the humans grow, right? And of course, that's something humans have struggled with since agriculture, right? Is how do you how do you fight off insect in invasions of your crops? How do you prevent that? You know, it's one thing to build a fence to stop rabbits or whatever, but preventing insects is, is pretty difficult, right? And there are permaculture ways to do it, organic farming ways of doing it. There's ways to do it with technology and, and pesticides or whatever, but it's, it's, a, it's a problem. And there's kind of a Malthusian sort of narrative here in that, you know, the insect population will continue to grow, consuming all the resources of the planet, and eventually, uh, the planet will be stripped bare by insects. And that's essentially what happens over the course of this, this story. And again, we get it from different points of view, different characters. Sometimes it's a journal entry. Sometimes it's like an academic lecture, a, a diary or whatever. And I think it's in, what is it, seven parts or so? Seven parts, each, each of just a few pages. But they give different moments in time. So um, the humans are facing extinction because of the destruction of plant life by the insects. So they eventually find out a way of, of basically eradicating um, the insects, but they're forced to live in bunkers inside and produce their food inside, synthetically use technology to survive because the natural world has been completely devastated by the insects. I mean, that's probably the scientifically unlikely part of it, right? Because the Malthusian logic doesn't apply to... It doesn't apply to humans, and it actually doesn't apply to nature either, because there's always ecological checks on, on expansion. Right? Now, eventually, the miracle of the lily is essentially the reappearance of, of plant life. right? So there's a moment when the insects have been eradicated, and humans are finally able to, to kind of use the land again and, and, and reintroduce plants into, into the world, become farmers again and things seem to be going better for them. And now throughout this whole story, there's this, there's this idea of conversing with Venus, right? Now, we're told that they can't actually see Venus because of the communication technology, but they can kind of send messages back and forth. So they're communicating with 
the Venusians, but they don't know what they look like, right? That becomes important for the end of the story because when the Venusians finally come, and here the story becomes a bit of a, of a jokey, you know, kind of a, a cliche science fiction, almost like a Outer Limits or a, um, a Twilight Zone kind of um, reorientation of your, uh, of your assumptions and the way you look at things. Um, because when the Venusians finally do come to Earth, after this kind of humans have revived their culture a little bit after this massive war with the insects, it turns out they're massive insects, right? And their concept of insects is little primates, right? So it's just an inversion of the situation on Earth where the bad guys, the dangerous insects are, are bugs and humans are the masters of the planet. And then on Venus, it's just inverted where the the dominant species is the intelligent large bugs and uh, the plague on that culture, on that econ ecology, are little primates. Now the ending is kind of hopeful because, uh, of course, once humans have been trained for so long to see insects as the enemy, there's this almost irrational desire to then kill the Venusians. So this is how Harris ends the story. Um, now they no longer urge us to construct other ships to go to help them dispose of their insects. I think they are afraid of us, and their very fear has aroused in mankind an unholy desire to conquer them. I'm against it. Have we not had enough war in the past? We have subdued our own world and should be content with that instead of seeking new worlds to conquer. But life is too easy here. I completely see it. Much as he may seem to dislike it, man is not happy unless he has some any need to overcome, some difficulty to surmount. Alas, my greatest fear for man's were groundless. A short time ago, when I went into my field to see how my crops were farting, faring, sorry, see how my crops were faring, I found a six-pronged beetle vacaciously eating. No, man will not need to go to in Venus to fight insects. So just like how the plants have been revived, so have insects somehow through natural processes reappeared on the earth. And so, you know, this conflict is going to ongoing on earth. It doesn't have to be transport to Venus. But still, the suggestion is humans may very well go to Venus to eradicate the bugs, right? Kind of like a Starship Troopers. <clears throat> um, and a rational war against an alien um, for whatever reason. Uh, in solidarity with their little bug, you know, their little insect-sized primate comrades. Um, now, as for gender in this story, it's not as clear as in some of the others. There are some female characters. Some of the, I think one of the scientists who is relating her story is a woman. But I, I think the ecological uh, narrative is something that's introduced here. And I'm, you know, we're, it's, we're very used to these stories about ecology now. We got the solar punks. We have the ecological dystopians writing a lot of stories. And it's on everyone's mind, right? I just finished watching The Dark Crystal. TV series, and there you have a very, very strong ecological message, very, very strong feminist, even a strong anarchist narrative running throughout that whole story, right? That wouldn't have been possible, I think, in the 80s. Even if there is an ecological dimension to the original Dark Crystal movie, it's not nearly as clear as it is in this new TV series. Um, so this, you know, it's, you know, I don't know. There, there might be others we can compare this to, but I was really struck by... Um, the focus of the story being the relationship between humans and Earth and seeing how humans, to save themselves, have to essentially eradicate, commit genocide, again, you know, numerous times against various insect species, right? And then somehow construct a world where they can survive without part of 
the natural environment that evolved in their world, right? And then how this, and then another element here is how a, a war, in this case, the war against insects created a pathology of violence and a cycle of violence that people couldn't really break free of. And for me, that's, that's a very important message in this particular story. All right, that's my thoughts on that story. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's a fun one. Uh, next, we have Leslie F. Stone, The Conquest of Gola. Um, this, this was published in 1931, initially, in Wonder Stories. By the way, The Miracle of the Lily was published in Amazing Stories. Um, I'm actually looking at this list. Some of these, a lot of these were published in Astounding. So the, the recent criticism of, of Chandler being some kind of sexist, fascist, you know, there's, you know, he wasn't completely closed off to women, apparently. He published some of them. I don't want to get into that debate too much. Um, I don't know that much about it. But it's in the, it's in the kind of backdrop of science fiction thought and conversations today, these days. Um, anyways, Leslie F. Stone, The Conquest of Gola, published in Wonder Stories in 1931. Um, this, it seems it's set on Venus. I, I actually went back to try to find out for sure. Um, it's a planet called Gola, which essentially is Venus. We're told that there's men living on the third planet, and then there's even this reference to uh, the fourth planet, which would be Mars, I would think. And then this Venus is covered in clouds, right? So it's kind of a mystery for the people from essentially Earth. So that's why I think it's a Venus-Earth um, story, but it's told from the perspective of the Venusians, who of course don't call themselves Venusians. They call themselves, um, their, they, they call their planet Gola. And the invaders from Earth, it's Dex, uh, Dexacle, or Dutaxel, I think. D-E-T-A-X-A-L is how it's spelled. And they arrive. And so we have a character here, um, um, like a leader of Gola, and it's it's a the big difference here. Here here's the gender narrative the nature, and this one is much more a jit story about gender. Is that Gola is a female dominated society where the men have been basically subdued and suppressed. It's still a it's a it's a matriarchal society in the same way Earth was a patriarchal society, right? It's not an egalitarian society between the genders, right? And um, this. You know, so not not to confuse those two. There are people who who question, you know, the nature of if early matriarchies exist. What was their nature, right? Was it the equivalent of patriarchy just flipped around, or was it a more egalitarian society, right? And there's debates about the Paleolithic, what to make of those Venus statues, and all that. But in this particular story, it is the women have essentially dominated and enslaved the men on Gola, and then back on um, Deta Exel, it's the, the men are remaining in charge as their normal patriarchal society, right? And it's a society of explorers and adventurers, right? So it's got that kind of male obsession with, with conquest and expansion and growth and colonization. Uh, this is evidenced by the fact that they run a, a massive federation that, that includes other planets. Um, not all the other planets in the solar system are dominated by the federation. Goal is only one that sort of remained independent of this male-dominated Earth-dominated federation. So we're told early in the story that that these the females, I, I don't know if woman is the right word in this case because they are aliens, the, the 
females who dominate Gola don't have the same interest in exploration and expansion. They, they, they focus on different things, right? So, um, not surprisingly, quote, quote, long ago, we too might have gone on exploring expeditions to other worlds, other universes, but for what? Are we not happy here? We who have attained our, the greatest civilization within the confines of our own silverly world, powerfully strong, but our mighty force rays, we could subjugate all the universe. But why? Are we not content with life as it is, with our lovely cities, our homes, our daughters, our gentle consorts? Why spend physical energy in combative strife for something we do not wish, when our mental processes carries further and beyond the conquest of mere terrestrial exploitation? On Detaxel, it's different. There are the people, the ignoble male creatures bred for physical prowess, leaving the development of their sciences, their philosophies, and their contemplation to an app of the abstract to a chosen few. The greater part of the race fares forth to conquer, to lay waste, to struggle and fight as the animals do over a morsel of worthless territory. Of course, we can see why they desired Gola with all its treasures, but we can thank Providence and ourselves that they did not succeed in commercializing us as they have the remainder of the universe with their ignoble federation. And, and that kind of sets up what Stone is trying to do in this story. Um, we This is followed by the visit of the people these men, they come, and they basically are trying to welcome Gola into the Federation uh, to be basically under their, their sovereignty. Uh, they resist, and eventually the, the men try to basically stage an invasion, because that's all they know. It's, they're just warmongers, as has been established early in the story. That's Except for a few, they're just trained to conquer, to be violent. And they fail, and they get captured. But they eventually break free and actually for a moment take over Gola. But that lasts only for a little while. And then eventually the, quote, first foray of the people of Dead Axel ends. <clears throat> um, however, the story is called The Conquest of Gola. So the, it does suggest that at some point Gola gets conquered by these males. Um, and they do come back. They come back sometime later after... An, an age in which the the, you know, the females who dominate Gola, I guess, don't learn any lessons from that previous invasion. It was defeated too easily. Now, this time when when the humans come back, they um, the Dex Axles come back. They're they're basically helped by the slaves. So there's a really interesting scene where at the at the very last moment when she realizes this this human or the assuming it I, again I'm assuming they're humans you know looking over her she notices her slave is is, is not aiding her and is, has kind of turned her his back on her quote the first indication I had of trouble brewing was when awakening I found the ugly form of John bending over me surprised for it was not his habit to arouse me I started up only to find his arms around me embracing and how strong he was for a moment a new emotion swept me for the first time I knew the pleasure to be had in the arms of a strong man but that emotion was short-lived I saw in the blue eyes of my slave that he had recognized a look in my eyes for what it was, and for the moment he was tender. Later, I was to grow angry when I thought of that expression of his, for his eyes filled with pity, pity for me. But pity did not stay. Instead, he grinned, and the next instant he was binding me down to my couch with strong rope. Gebel, I later learned, had been treated as I, as were the members of the council and every other woman in Gola. That is what came of allowing our men to meet our common ground with the creatures from Dedaxel, for a weak mind is open to seeds of rebellion, and the Dedaxelans had sworn it well, promising dominance to the lesser creatures of Gola. So what you essentially have on Gola, I mean, even if you set aside the, the invasion narrative, 
right? Which is kind of the impetus of this. But setting that aside, what you have is a culture that has essentially enslaved its male population and, you know, basically a, a full-blown matriarchy um, in the way the crazy anti-feminists do imagine, you know, what feminism is about. Uh, it's not what it's about, obviously, but, you know, there are people who think feminism is about women dominating men and uh, equality. Nevertheless, that's, that's the picture of a society we're given here, though, is the females have dominated, the males treating them essentially as slaves. Um, and the arrival of these aliens, you know, brings some incentive for them to, to reimagine the, what, what their role as men could be, right? What the role as males could be and change and, and, and giving them, kind of radicalizing them a little bit, yeah? So then you have a gender uprising. So you just flip this around, right? And it's a warning to a patriarchy to beware, you know, don't, don't ignore women, right? That they can be a threat to your their power. And indeed, by the middle of the 20th century, that was real in much of the world, right? Now, one of the greatest achievements of the 20th century, I think, if we look back in a few hundred years at what was important about the 20th century, I think one of the most important things is going to be the rise of women. That in the vast majority of societies on earth, women went from being second-class citizens, uh, having all sorts of legal and inequalities, inequalities in the job market, um, marriages were largely patriarchal, to women having the right to vote, women in the job market, women CEOs. Um, now, it's not true everywhere, but you know, most of the world, the vast majority of the world saw sizable improvements in women's status, um, often through struggle, right? It, it didn't just come, it didn't come because men decided to. It was uh, a resistance movement by women. Right. And that's, I think, the warning here. And I like the story. This one is quite. Um, this one is quite good. Oh, but I forgot to mention the, the climax of the story. Right. Because you have this the second invasion, which is successful. But eventually the, the, the women of Gola, the females of Gola are able to over, overthrow that rebellion as well. Right. And destroy that invasion force. Um, and there's this warning at the end. Oh, yes, more came from their planets to discover what had happened to their ships and their men. But we of Gola no longer hesitated, and they no sooner appeared beneath the mists than they were too were annihilated until at last Dexatel gave up thought of conquering our cloud-laden world. Perhaps in the future they'll attempt it again, but we are always in readiness for them now. And our men, well, they are still the same ineffectual weaklings, my daughters. Right? So the story ends with, with uh, arrogance and a belief that that males will never be a threat to them, even their own males who have proven to be disloyal in, in the previous um, rebellion. So the, the, in this case, it's the arrogance of a matriarchy, right? But certainly the, we see that same arrogance in patriarchy, right? Belittling women's point of view and perspective, um, not fully appreciating their contributions to society, and then not seeing them as capable of actually disrupting the established power. Um, obviously, living at the beginning of the 21st century, we can't see that way anymore. I mean, the, there's, you know, that's clearly an early 20th century, even an 18th century view of women's role that's been since disrupted. But um, yeah, a nice story, a really interesting one, I think. Uh, then the third story for today is C.L. Moore's The Black God's Kiss. And like I said earlier, I, I had known about the Jarell of Jory stories 
kind of vaguely, kind of as the female Conan sort of thing, but I don't know if that's fair. I mean, I still kind of feel when I read it. These were published in Weird Tales, all these t- t- tales. This, um, yeah, this one was published in 1934 in Weird Tales, October. C.L. Moore's the author. And I think all the Jarell stories were published in Weird Tales, just like the Conan stories were published in Weird Tales. You have that same kind of feeling in that it's quasi-historical. It seems to almost be on Earth. Uh, this one does have a specific place in, in, well, not specific, but it has a place in time. It's certainly after the Roman Empire, and it's in kind of France, right? But there's no physical place we can locate and say that this is a, this is this kingdom or this is this state. It's just some post-Roman um, nomadic or Germanic kind of feudal state that's somewhere in present-day France, it seems. One, what the villains has a French name, Guillaume. Oh, that's pronounced G-U-I-L-L-A-U-M-E. <clears throat> After getting done with Willa Cather, I thought I'd be done with these French names. Uh, one showed up. Um, so anyways, uh, it's it seems to have a place, a rough place and a rough time, right? While Conan's just kind of in a primordial past, but it's still an earth, and you have things that are familiar, like kings and barbarians and, and warriors and, and wars and and all these things that are familiar, but there's then there's the weird magic and the gods and, and all that. So it's it's a fantasy set in our world in times when maybe the historical narrative is a little bit not as fleshed out. You know, the Dark Ages, right? So this is set in the dark, the true Dark Ages before kind of the feudal age really takes off. You know, those areas when the the, the Roman Empire in the West was collapsing. Um, so, anyways, this this I believe is the first published of the Jarell of Jory stories and there'd be i think five more and they're all put together in a book now which i might want to read um the story begins with the basically the conquest of the the jewelry castle right and the capturing of of jarell um here's we get her description she's she's described really in quite striking terms um Okay, this is when they first set their eyes on Jorel of Jory. She was as tall as most men and as savage as the wildest of them, and the fall of Jory was bitter enough to break her heart as she stood snarling curses upon her tall conqueror. The face above her mail might not have been fair in a woman's headdress, but in the steel setting of her armor it had a biting, sordid beauty as keen as a flash of blades. Her red hair was short upon her high, defined head, and the yellow blaze of her eyes held fury as a crucible holds fire. So, redheaded, of course. Um, so, basically, her conqueror, this Gilome, is it's kind of hot, and she sort of has the hots for him a little bit, but she also hates him furiously for conquering her castle, right? So, she wakes up, she's in the jail, in her own castle, right? she's locked up, and she escapes pretty easily. She, she basically knocks a sentry unconscious and is able to escape and then she goes to talk to um, the king I guess or to her father no he's not a king he's like called father Gervase um, and she talks to him and he says like I am going she says I'm going to go to hell to get a weapon to like, to kill this guy right and that's where I have to go and he's like don't go don't go it's better you die than to go to hell you'll come back you'll be corrupted all that and she says no 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 i'm gonna go anyways I'm, i have to i have to find a weapon it's the only place i can find a weapon i need 
Um, if God's not going to help us, right? Unless she says something like, outside God's dominion, hell's the only place I can find the weapon I need. So, you know. So he's forced to basically give her some kind of blessing, and she heads out. And then much of this story, it's not, it's fairly lengthy, actually. It's over 30 pages. But for much of the story, it's just her digging down. There, there apparently is like some tunnel under the castle that they had explored a little bit before. And so they kind of knew it went to hell. And she's going to go down deeper into it. And as she goes down, she has all these weird experiences and meets these weird people. She meets like a, a reflection of herself that talks to her. There's this wonderful moment where there are these blind horses, white horses um, running. Really cool stuff. It's so imaginative. I just love, I'm blown away by this stuff. We even get some kind of Lovecraftian description of architecture. Uh, quote, it was a long way down before she had gone very far. The curious dizziness she had known before came over her again. A dizziness not entirely induced by the spiral she whirled around, but a deeper atomic unsteadiness as if not only she, but also the substance around her were shifting. There was something queer about the angles of those curves. She was no scholar in geometry or aught else, but she felt instinctively that the bent and slant of the way she went was somehow outside any other angles or bend she had ever known, end quote. Now that's a Lovecraftian trope, isn't it? It seems to me. Lovecraft's always talking about non-Euclidean geometry or just things being queerly shaped, especially whenever you meet this kind of alien architecture, right? But she goes through all these different passages, digs her way down, fights monsters on the way. She's, of course, armed and, and you know, like she comes out. When she comes out, her sword's all filled with like the guts of 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 the of the creatures she had to kill a few times she has to actually clean her sword on, on the way um, yeah so she finally finds the, the 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 center of hell which she's looking for and it's a big black idol quote the image was of some substance of nameless black unlike the material which composed the building for even in the dark she could see it clearly it was a semi-human figure crouching forward with outthrust head sexless and strange its one central eye was closed as if in rapture and its mouth was pursed for a kiss and though it was but an image and without even the semblance of life she felt unmistakably the presence of something alive in the temple something so alien and intimate that instinctively she drew away so this is the god this is the idol now, I want to stop here and think about this story. Um, I don't know how this, how, I'm glad it's here. I'm glad this story's in this anthology. I'm not saying that, but it doesn't seem like science fiction to me. Um, so Yazek included it. I mean, C.L. Moore is known for writing science fiction, right? Uh, no Woman Born is a wonderful story. It's, it's, it's one of the earliest science fiction stories I actually ever read um, in my adulthood. Actually, had an anthology of women science fiction writers called Women of Wonder, um, which I found when I was in college or something at like a dollar store or a rummage sale or something, and it had No Woman Born, and it was like the first story in that anthology. So it was actually one of the first science fiction stories I read when I started exploring science fiction more in my in my adulthood. I had read some stuff in, as a kid, but mostly fantasy when I was a kid. Um, this seems to be straight up fantasy or weird fiction. It doesn't seem to qualify science fiction unless you want to say that this underground society is some kind of Lovecraftian alien force right and maybe you could justify that and say ah see it's science fiction but nevertheless I'm really glad this story is included because it's just so wild and the imagery is great and it's really beautiful and I'm so I'm actually pretty excited to find 
these other Jarell of, of Jory stories and, and see where you know see her other tales, her other adventures. Um, anyways, what she does with this idol is she kisses it, right? And this is how she gets her weapon. And then she comes back up um, and confronts her enemy. And she kisses her enemy, and through this kiss, she just kind of passes on this wet, this evil or this this weapon, this poison, to him, and he dies. And this allows her to get her her revenge. There's nothing really about what happened after this, like how they free the castle, because I guess this guy's soldiers are still in the castle; they're still occupying it. Um, but you know, the final scene is just um, her feeling some regret with the death of this guy who she actually kind of had the hots for, right? So what's interesting about the story, besides just its, its wildness and its cool adventure and its weird locations and just the, the bizarreness of it all and the fact that when you first read it, you're like, hey, this is female cum man, that's pretty cool. Uh, beyond that, I mean, the making Jarell of Jory sexually active, right? There's even a line where, you know, she... She kind of wants to sleep with this guy who conquered her castle, and but she can't because she hates him so much. But there's even the line like she's not, she's essentially not, she's not a maid. Is the, the implication of the sentence? I, I, I'm not going to find the the exact passage. Maybe, maybe I'll look. Give me a second. Sorry, I can't find it. But anyways, it, it's clear she's sexually very assertive, and she's not, she's not married or anything. So it seems she has various lovers. Um, and that's kind of a cool thing. And then her conflicted relationship with this conqueror, her hatred for her, but also she has a passion for him and, and she sees him as beautiful. And even at the end of the story, when he dies, she, she has this thought that some light has been removed from the world through her, through her action, right? Um, and she is just such a powerful, uh, amazing character. Um, just read a little bit. This is early in the story. Many little hatreds had she known in life, but no such as blaze as this. Before her eyes in the night, she could see Guillaume's scornful, scarred face laughing, the little juddering beard split with the whiteness of his mirth. Upon his mouth, she felt she remembered weight of his about her strength of his arms. And such a blast of hot fury came over her that she reeled a little and clutched for the wall for support. She went on in a haze of red anger and something like madness burned in her brain as a resolve slowly took shape out of the chaos of her hate. When that thought came to her, she paused again, mid-step in the stairs and was conscious of the little coldness blowing over her. Then it was gone and she shivered a little, shook her shoulders and gleefully, grinned wolfishly and went on. A um, lot of passages like that, right? So if this was filmed today or this was written today, it, there'd be some kind of uh, hate sex between Jarell and this, this conqueror, right? Really, really great story. I really love this story. Um, I'm going to seek out the rest of those Cielamore Jarell of Jory stories to see what else she did with them. Uh, kind of amazing these stories exist. And it's a shame I haven't come across them earlier. Um, anyways, next. Next. Uh, a very short one. Uh, Leslie Perry called Space Episode. This was in Future Combined with Science Fiction. Uh, volume 2. I don't know how... I've never heard of this journal before, so maybe it's not that... Um, long-lived of, of a journal. 1941. Uh, this is um, this is a simple story in which a woman, apparently because of love for one of the men on the ship, sacrifices herself 
But the key thing is that she's the only character who's capable of making the sacrifice, of having the will and the assertiveness and the and the, the basically the courage to do this, right? So for we have three people on this ship. It's two men, um, Eric, Michael, and what's the name of the woman? Lita. Lita's her name, but she's mostly just referred to as she. I think we only get her name when Michael mentions it. Oh, a few times we do, but largely it's just she. Um, so there's really a strong emphasis on her gender throughout the story. Um, but basically, the ships run into some problem, like a meteorite hit it or something, and they're going to all die unless someone essentially goes out there and repairs it. But that will be a sacrifice. There's not going to be time to save this person who goes down. So someone is going to have to die, right? And the men are covering in fear. Panicking, not knowing what to do, and she says, "We got to do something. One of us has to go out there. We got to draw straws." And then the men are just impotent. And at one point, she, she says, "Okay, then I'm going to do it." And she puts on her suit. And at this point, only at this point, does one of the men—is it—is it Michael? Uh, Michael the Gallant. I, you know, I'll, I'll come to that quote in a little bit. But you know, at that point, one of them says, well, no, let me do it. And she's like, there's not time anymore. You kind of blew your chance to get ready. And she just goes out fearlessly. But she hates, she seems to hate them for their cowardice. Um, but here's how Michael is described. Um, or here's how both the men are described. She, I mean, Perry here is really twisting the, the archetype of the heroic male space adventurer. Uh, quote, what of Michael the Gallant? He slumped in his seat, holding his face and shaking hands. Could this be the same man who had saved them all by scaling what was virtually a sheer cliff at night and obtaining help from neighboring Aborigines? All the dangers they had faced together and overcome together now crowded into her memory, one piling on another. Scores of times, one of them had unhesitantly faced unpleasant death for the sake of all. She had been no exception. As for Eric... Um, Michael's, okay, Eric looked at her vaguely for a long second and turned his eyes to the teleplate. Cold perspiration stood on his forehead. This was the dashing Eric Vane, one-time secret dream hero, close companion since that day years back when he and Mike had fished her out of the wreck of her plane somewhere in the Pacific. Suddenly it all seemed amusing to her. The question of sacrifice lay between er Michael and Eric. This was strictly men's work, but they were finding life a sweet thing. A sudden burst of laughter overcame her. There was such an amusing impotency to Eric's strength and the dash of his clothes. The knuckle stood white in his hands, cold, damp fear glittering in his forehead. So it's very clear what she's doing here. She's making the men look ridiculous and, and, and silly. And Lita's the only one who has the will and the, the courage to do what needs to be done, even though she's going to die. Um, we hear her after she does her job and saves the ship. Um, you know, we hear her think of the hate she has hatred for them you know a, a real disgust for them and we think she's just resenting that but in the the very last line so at the last moment she's realized i'm gonna run out of air in a in an hour she's out in space i might as well just die right and so she's gonna take the helmet off and just die in space um, but her last thoughts are michael michael and so it seems she did this for love not simply uh, out of her, her courage so it's a little more comp it's more made more complex at the end when we realize that she probably had some feelings for him at least that's how I read it um, you know, why else would her final thoughts be this man's name who she just a few lines earlier uh, thought I hope they go to hell damn them that was less than a page earlier um, so it seems clear to me that there's some 
uh, emotion there. But this is a, a really great story, both showing a, a woman acting heroically, it's overturning the damsel in distress narrative, but even more so pushing just how impotent and cowardly these men were when put in a situation like this, where it was true life or death, where, where death was certain. Right? And those other circumstances they talked about, they could be brave because death wasn't certain. Right? It was possible they would live, but not in this case. In this case, death was inevitable. Um, okay, so then the last story for today is That Only a Mother by Judith Merrill. This was published in Astounding, um, 1948. Um, okay, this is a famous story. It's, it's in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. Um, if, if you don't know what that is, it's, I, I think now it's published in three volumes, but I mean, there's A and B. A is like 25 short stories or so. B is probably a couple dozen novellas uh, and that's published usually in two volumes these days and these were the basically science fiction writers voted on the greatest stories and they were these were the ones that were included uh, there was some editorial discretion made in the list like no more than one per author and, and things like that but some but you, sh you should have this collection if you're interested in science fiction it's really a, um, an essential the essential text to have for the golden age of science fiction um, and that only a mother's in there. It's it's one of the it's a good story. It's a great story, and it, it's um, it's very much a story of the nuclear age, right? Um, now we've of course in the Philip Dick series I did we come across a lot of mutant stories, right? And there's always this idea that the nuclear bomb, you know, unleashed kind of mutants on the world, you know, and it makes the post-humans or the superhumans. That's kind of what Philip Dick was playing with a lot, right? He did have a story called The Crawlers where uh, the nuclear power and radiation made these kind of mutant worm people uh, that ended up creating their own society underground. But even they were kind of funct functioning, right? Merrill's story is much more pessimistic. It's a, a It's where most children being born are born deformed and non-viable or with some other major physiological problems. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of those worlds where the birth rate is very low or most of the kids who are born are not capable of living. We've seen this in science fiction um, plenty of times, obviously. So the way the story is told, it's, all, it's mostly told from a woman, the woman's point of view, this mother. Um, the, the husband's like off at war. He's off doing his job at war. And we get the letters um, back and forth. And she's telling the story about, about her child about her, her baby, that baby that's been born. And it's, it's a classical war story, right? Like, um, this actually happened in my own family. Like, my grandparents married right before the war, um, and my grandfather was off in the Pacific when his son was born. And he didn't see him until he came back from the war, right? Until he was like two or three. Um, it's that kind of story. So, but there's the letters going back and forth, talking about her experiences, and everything seems great, right? And of course, Hank, the husband, finally gets leave and comes back, and then it's revealed that the baby is is a mutant, but that the mother just simply couldn't see that. That you know she's presented as kind of delusional. The final line is, she didn't know. His hands behind control ran up and down the soft skin baby body, the sinuous limbless body. Oh God, dear God, his head shook and his muscles contracted in a bitter spasm of hysteria. His fingers tightened on his child. Oh God, she didn't know. And the implication seems to me that he's choking this, this child to death, and this child that's been alive for some time because it is a, a mutant, and you know, 
and, it, and it's not going to be able to survive in the world. Now, there's a lot of interesting details here. Like one is the the infanticide by the father at the, in the last um, moments is previewed earlier in the story where we hear that one of um, the mothers, is it Margaret? Yeah, Margaret's great fears is is infanticide by the by the husband, because they're the ones who typically do that. Historically, usually infanticide was done by the mothers, by the way. It wasn't done by the fathers. I, I know in China, you know, when if a girl was born and it was decided the family can't support that, this happened very commonly in pre-modern times. Actually, in a lot of cultures, it, you, you see this, especially during, um, you know, famine years and drought years and things. You know, it was usually the women who had to do this. It wasn't a male man's job, so... Um, but this particular character is, is does, just doesn't believe this 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 child's a mute. She sees him as normal. In fact, the other interesting detail here is she's precocious, and there's a implication here that maybe she's one of these mutant geniuses that you do see in the Philip Dick or the you, know, you often see this kind of stuff stuff in astounding stories too, right? The superhuman, posthuman mutant who can you know kind of take humanity to the next stage. Right? Maybe she is that because she's, you know, the, the Margaret starts reporting that she has a prodigy, right? Uh, quote, one of her letters, we have a prodigy for real. Now that all her front teeth are in her speech is perfectly clear and a new talent now. She, she can sing, I mean, really carry a tune. At seven months, darling, my world would be perfect if you'd only get home. So anyways, what's great about this story, I think, is that it takes this mutant archetype which has been out there it's we've seen it so much in science fiction but what it's done with this mutant archetype is that it has put it from the perspective of the mother who gives birth to the mutant right not just uh that's something that we we that wasn't really being shown before this story right and that relationship between the mother and child even one who is handicapped in this case no arms and no legs is the and there might be other deformities too like um I think the nurses are unclear if it's a boy or a girl at first, so there seems to be other kind of weird weirdness physically. Um, but you know that special relationship has created the psychosis in her mind that she's given birth to a normal child, but simply it's not true, right? And then it, you know, the troubling thing in the story is that it's then the man's job to come in and basically murder his child um, because she is immune, right? Now, the weird thing here is, like, as the story begins, we're told that there's this, like, the population is well-informed about exposure to radiation and its effect on childbirth. And um, she's even thinking about the fact that her husband's job may have exposed him or exposed his sperm to some radiation. And it's on her mind, right? It's not like she was 100% confident she was going to have a healthy kid and then couldn't believe anything else but that. You know, she seemed to be well prepared for this possibility, uh, but nevertheless, she was unable to, um, unwilling to, to to see the truth about her kid. Right. So, a really good story about motherhood, and again, it's it takes that classic mutant story and and adds that element, which I think has been missing in many of the, many others, which is the mother-child relationship. Right. These mutants often disappear, and we don't don't see that family structure of it. Uh, 
So, yeah, a nice story. And, of course, famous. Many people have read it, so that's why I feel I don't need to say too much about it. Uh, it's probably the most famous story included in this collection. So, anyways, that does it. That's the first 100 pages of this volume, five stories. Uh, in the next uh, episode, I think I'm just going to look at three. Yeah, because they're long. In Hiding, that's about 50 pages uh, by Wilmar uh, H. Shiras. This is the Children of Adam stuff. More Mutants. Uh, Catherine McLean Contagion. That, that's another fairly long story about um, individuality and in, in colonization. And then The Inhabited Men. So just look at three stories. It's another 100 pages, though. So um, that'll be in the next episode. Um, for now, let me know what you think about these stories. Have you come across this anthology by Lisa Yazek? Um, if you haven't, I, you know, I think it's, it's worth picking up. You're going to find new stuff here, I'm almost certain, unless you've you know, been reading science fiction your whole life and all these stories. But chances are you're going to find something new in here. The introduction is really an important work of scholarship on its own, and I enjoyed reading that. So, yeah, pick up this edition or, or find these stories and, and read them. They're, they're worth looking at. But leave your own thoughts below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'll be here next time with uh, some more of the stories in The Futurist Female, 25 Classic Science Fiction Stories by Women. Uh, thanks for, for listening. For a means to slay that foe and free her men. And when she found her enemy spirit bound there, then to free it, she went back again.